Peruan Saranai, homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Welcome to our Durutu Full Moon Poya Dhamma session. Heartfelt good wishes to everyone joining online on this Uposatha day. The title for today's Dhamma session is the Exposition of the Elements, which is the Buddhist teaching from the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. So a number of Kalyanamittas requested if we could examine and explore this very important teaching to better understand the six elements as the Buddha has taught. So it's a very beneficial teaching to hear the Buddha's words, to know how to contemplate with respect to each of these six elements, which are earth element, element of extension, water, element of cohesion, fire, element of heat, air or wind, element of motion, space, and also consciousness elements. When we hear the Buddha's words and then contemplate and meditate following his, his, his instructions, it's possible for us to gain wisdom, proper wisdom to see things as they really are. There's also an insight pathway in meditating on these six elements correctly. And our wrong views regarding these six elements get corrected. We're able to abandon the wrong view with the right view. And in this way, we can overcome ignorance and craving or attachment that we have to these elements. Maybe also what gets revealed is how much we are attached to these six elements, that we can even see that is actually very important because that's what keeps us bound to this whole mass of suffering. The way the Buddha teaches in this sutta highlights three specific links in the Paticca Samuppada. So this is known as dependent origination. And these are the six sense bases, contact, as well as feeling. So the Buddha teaches about the arising and passing away of these conditions. And we will go through this in more depth in this session, following closely in line with the Buddha's words. If we can break these links, even temporarily, to gain some insight, this wisdom can be very, very powerful. And I think some of us already know that. Because of this, we will gradually build up the session and we will meditate together in this session as we go through the elements. We need to sharpen our spiritual faculties. So establishing the right view through the Buddha's words, making effort, applying the mindfulness towards the right view, developing the higher concentrations and growing in wisdom to see the Dhamma. And therefore we grow in conviction towards the Buddha as well. So like we know, if we see this Dhamma, which means gaining insight in our meditation of what the Buddha means by this teaching, then we see the Buddha. And in seeing the Buddha, we see the Dhamma. So we develop and train the mind in this gradual way to make gradual progress. So as it's a slightly longer middle-length discourse, we may not complete the entire sutta in this session. And that's okay. We can come back to it to, to finish it off. But the most important thing on this course of the day is to hear the words of the Buddha regarding these six elements, to examine them together so we can understand the meaning, understand this Dhamma, and apply ourselves to the practice and gain proper wisdom of these six elements. So what we'll cover today is our usual tips and reminders to begin the session. Then we'll have an overview of what's in the Data Vibhanga Sutta. So we'll take a bird's eye view of this teaching. So we understand the sutta architecture, the context for the teaching given by the Buddha, and any links to other suttas we've studied as well. We'll then deep dive straight into the Buddha's uh, exposition of the elements. 
And the Buddha offers this teaching to Venerable Pukasati. And we're going to go through this teaching step by step because it's actually a very gradual teaching. And we'll meditate along the way as well. So in that way, what we take away from the session is our direct insight, whatever that is, and the encouragement from meditating together. And then we'll end also with questions and answers. So tips and reminders, as usual, keep an open mind. There may be things that we've already meditated on before, but in listening to the Buddha's words, it may be that we're refreshing what we've heard before or we're learning something new. So keep an open mind. Be okay with not understanding everything because always there's something that maybe we're not ready for yet or we haven't quite understood. We need to see it in the meditation. Remember that we're all learners. So we're all trying to understand these words of the Buddha, trying to lean on each other's you know, good, wholesome uh, spiritual faculties. And then when we meditate, apply ourselves to this meditation and as always, we need to apply our own examples or take what the Buddha has given us and try and see it through how we see things in our own daily life. And of course, we have good wishes to everyone. So everyone that has helped us to be here today, everyone that continues to support us and to make all these things possible and everyone on this Zoom call today. So let's begin. So let's have a quick overview of this teaching. So the Buddha gave this teaching to Venerable Pukusati. So he was a clansman who had gone forth out of conviction in the Buddha. And he doesn't recognize the Buddha when they meet. And it's really interesting because we think about the Buddha and he has all these uh, great marks of the Buddha. But clearly they were subdued in order to deliver this teaching to Venerable Pukusati. And the Buddha then, when he realizes that this, this being has gone, gone forward, this human being has gone forward, based on the Buddha's teachings, he, he gives him a teaching himself. And this is what, without Venerable Pukusati realizing that he is actually in the presence of the Buddha. And what's interesting is he gives this powerful summary, then a brief explanation, and then a detailed exposition. So an analysis on the six elements. And this is in order to provide proper wisdom to attain Nibbana. Now, when the Buddha does this, we would know this in Pali as Udesa Nidesa Patinidesa. And this is one of the teaching styles of the Buddha. Some, sometimes he would begin with a summary. Then he would give a little more in way of a brief explanation. And then he would launch into a detailed analysis. And the Arahants would also follow this style of teaching as well. You see Venerable Mahakachana also following this kind of style of teaching and instruction as well. And it's very helpful to us because particularly the detailed analysis, it gives us step-by-step -step instructions on how to contemplate the Dhamma. And then, of course, when we look at other suttas, there are links to other teachings of the Buddha. This is not exhaustive, so just the ones that we have looked at recently, such as Chula Sunyata Sutta, also in respect of Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, because that looks at the exposition on the six bases. And we covered a little bit of that previously. And then also our meditation, when we meditate on the Gata, the verse uh, from Chunda Sutta about by giving merit grows. So that's also linked. And what we find by the end of this teaching is that Venerable Pukusati has attained the fruit of non-return and he was reborn into the pure abodes. So the Sutta Vasa. So if we look at the architecture for this Sutta, just to get a idea the first part is really the opening so there's four parts the opening where the buddha meets venerable pukusati 
and they're staying in the workshop of a, a potter called Bhagava. And then most of the sutta is actually about the teaching. So this is where the summary brief explanation and then the detailed analysis is given. And then the last part is really Venerable Pukusati admitting because he realizes after the teaching that he's in the presence of the Buddha and he has been addressing the Buddha as friend. And so he admits the transgression for, for not having re recognized the Buddha. And then he makes the request to uh, fully enter into the Sangha. And there's a, a bit to the story with that as well. And then the closing is where Venerable Pukasati eventually, he, he actually passes away because he is gored by a cow and the Buddha discloses to the monks when they ask the destination of Venerable Pukasati. Uh, he tells them that he has realized the, the fruit of non-return. And so he's, he's in the Sudhavasa, the pure abodes. So before we go straight into the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, it's really helpful to make reference to this other sutta called Datu Sutta, and it's a short one. And it helps with understanding the context for the Buddha's teaching to Venerable Pukusati and also why it's so important for us as well. So I'll read out what it says. It says, At Savati, bhikkhus, desire and lust, so in Pali this is Chandaraga, for the earth element is a corruption of the mind. Desire and lust for the water element, for the fire element, for the air element, for the space element, for the consciousness element is a corruption of the mind. When a bhikkhu has abandoned the mental corruption in these six cases, his mind inclines to renunciation. So this is the nikama. A mind fortified by renunciation becomes wieldy. So that means it's malleable in regard to those things that are to be realized by direct knowledge. So in these short words or this short paragraph, it's actually a very powerful statement because essentially what it is saying is that when we are ignorant of these six elements, so earth, water, fire, air, space, and consciousness, we misapprehend them and then take them as mine. And we continue to have this chandaraga, this desire and lust or attachment towards the six elements. So when we meditate, for example, on the Vatupama Sutta, and we meditate on the mental stain of stinginess. There are five kinds of, of stinginess, as we know. When it comes to avasa macharya, so the stinginess regarding our dwelling or abode, we usually think of our house or other spaces as mine. But the body itself, this body made up of the six elements, is the dwelling or the home that we're most stingy about, most selfish about. It is actually what we consider our most precious thing. And so the desire and lust that arises out of our misapprehension regarding this body, made up of the four great elements, space and consciousness, drives our choices, drives our volition towards seeking pleasure. So when we have this wrong view regarding the elements, taking them as mine, we can also understand all the other kinds of stinginess, stinginess regarding gain, lava macharya, families or groups, kula macharya, around reputation, vana macharya, and stinginess regarding knowledge, ideas, and views, so the, the dhamma macharya. So with the wrong view, what that essentially means when we're so stingy about this body we actually want to create another six elements to birth another eye, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind in order to experience what we perceive as happiness or pleasure. We don't see the danger, the predicament. So through form, we have this desire in us. So that's how these mental corruptions arise. And we want to experience sensual pleasures. That's when we're ignorant of the truth. 
And the truth is really what we've spoken about time and time again, that our predicament is always with birth, we are subject to aging, sickness and death. When there is impermanence, you know, this arising and passing away, we are subject to change. So there is suffering. If there is suffering, it is not worth taking as me or mine or self. So we're not meant to identify with this body. We're not meant to take this form as mine, as me, as self. Now, if we practice and develop proper wisdom to see, as uh, you know, to see this, then in this Tato Vibhanga Sutta, we naturally look for something better, something beyond form. So with some understanding, we enter into infinite space or infinite consciousness. And in these formless attainments, we experience the feeling that we're so happy. The mind is more expansive and vast, and it's so much better than what we experience with the form and the sensual pleasures that are that are more gross. And uh, we have to take care of this body and all those sorts of things. We have to work in order to sustain the body. But if we are deceived by these formless attainments as permanent and lasting, we mistake them for Nibbana, then the desire and lust for them will keep us bound to samsara as well and this whole mass of suffering. So the Buddha teaches us in this Tato Vibhanga Sutta, similar to the Trula Sunyata Sutta, that infinite space, infinite consciousness, they arise and pass away based on feeling and it's constructed, it's impermanent, subject to change. So when there is this kind of suffering, then even with the formless attainments, they're not to be taken as mine, me, or, or even as self. So we're not meant to identify as I am infinite space, I am infinite consciousness, nor the high attainments of nothingness, also emptiness, or neither perception or non-perception. So all of those higher attainments are not mine, not me, not self. So we'll delve further into this as we go through the Dato Vibhanga Sutta. The Buddha always instructs us on how something is constructed. So how does it come to arise and how does it pass away? This is very important for wisdom to arise, to gain that insight so we're not duped, not deceived by constructed conditions. So the Buddha definitely encourages us to experience all of these formless states and to directly see for ourselves how it's constructed. So there is this dependent arising and therefore it is death-bound. So if we follow the Buddha's instructions and we abandon the mental corruption towards the six elements, um, in simple terms, we develop wisdom about these six elements. So we don't take delight, don't welcome, don't remain holding to any of these six elements. Therefore, our minds incline towards nekama, so this renunciation. So we have a detachment towards coming into an, any kind of existence again or non-existence. And therefore, we're geared more towards developing the Noble Eightfold Path, fully developing the Noble Eightfold Path to realize Nibbana. So in that knowledge, when we gain insight in the meditation, we start to see that only Nibbana offers the supreme safety and happiness because it is not death-bound. So that is the context for the Buddhist teaching on the exposition of elements. So it gives us a bit of a a broad view of what we're going to go into. And now what we're going to is to start looking at the sutta and how we develop the wisdom to penetrate the six elements. So the Buddha starts, or the discourse starts by saying, thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was wandering in the Magadan country and eventually arrived at Rajagaha. 
There he went to the potter, Bhagavar, and said to him, If it is not inconvenient for you, Bhagavar, I will stay one night in your workshop. And then the potter replies, It is not inconvenient for me, Venerable Sir, but there is a homeless one already staying there. If he agrees, then stay as long as you like, Venerable Sir. And then now there was a clansman named Pukasati who had gone forth from home life into homelessness out of convictional faith in the Blessed One. And on that occasion, he was already staying in the potter's workshop. Then the Blessed One went to the Venerable Pukasati and said to him, if it is not inconvenient for you, Bhikkhu, I will stay one night in the workshop. The potter's workshop is large enough, friend. Let the venerable one stay as long as he likes. So you can see here that uh, venerable Pukusati calls him friend. Then the blessed one entered the potter's workshop, prepared a spread of grass at one end and sat down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect and establishing mindfulness in front of him. Then the Blessed One spent most of the night seated in meditation, and the Venerable Pukasati also spent most of the night seated in meditation. Then the Blessed One thought, this clansman conducts himself in a way that inspires confidence. Suppose I were to question him. So he asked the Venerable Pukasati, under whom have you gone forth, Bhikkhu? Who is your teacher? Whose Dhamma do you profess? And then Venerable Pukasati says, friend, there is this recluse Gautama, the son of the Sakyans, who went forth from a Sakyan clan. Now a good report of that blessed Gautama has been spread to this effect. That blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened, blessed. I have gone forth under that blessed one. That blessed one is my teacher. I profess the Dhamma of that blessed one. And then the Buddha questions him further and says, but Bhikkhu, where is that blessed one? Accomplished and fully enlightened, now living. And then Venerable Pukasati says, there is a friend, there is friend, a city in the northern country named Savati. The blessed one, accomplished and fully enlightened, is now living there. And then the Buddha says, but Bhikkhu, have you seen that blessed one before? Would you recognize him if you saw him? And then he replies, no, friend, I have never seen that blessed one before, nor would I recognize him if I saw him. And then the Buddha thought, this clansman has gone forth from the home life into homelessness under me. Suppose I were to teach him the Dhamma. So the blessed one addressed the venerable Pukasati thus, Bhikkhu, I will teach you the Dhamma. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. And Venerable Pukasati replied, yes, friend. So you can see here that the Buddha knows that he is the Buddha and he meets this Venerable Pukasati. And there's various uh, places where it says that the Buddha may have known. And so in terms of the luminosity and the other marks that are normally seen with the Buddha, he might have subdued, subdued them because maybe he saw that Venerable Pukasati was ready uh, to, to receive a teaching and maybe he also knew that he had been trying to get to Savati to actually meet the Buddha so in that respect it's interesting how the Buddha doesn't reveal himself even at this point he actually instead offers a teaching and what's really interesting about the last bit is that Venerable Pukusati is suvacha he's easy to instruct he's not thinking anything about hearing a teaching from this person that he assumes is simply a friend. And so that's something also for us to bear in mind that um, 
this person is so receptive. So the Buddha begins by giving a summary of his exposition. And we could call this part the Udesa. And what he says is, Bhikkhu, this person consists of six elements, six bases of contact, and 18 kinds of mental exploration. And he has four determinations. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these determinations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. One should not neglect wisdom, should preserve truth, should cultivate relinquishment, and should train for peace. This is the summary of the exposition of the six elements. So it's very brief. Um, in Pali, Dhatu, of course, we know it's translated as elements. Uh, it's also constituents of a whole. And uh, Pasa Ayatana is translated as the spheres or bases of contact that the Buddha refers to. And Mano Pavicharo, that can be translated as uh, mental exploration, but also mental examination, a bit like Vitaka Vichara, thought and examination, or even mental indulging. And the Buddha summarizes what he's about to elaborate on by telling us that the person consists of six elements, six bases of contact, and 18 kinds of mental exploration. And he has four determinations. So determinations is this Pali word, aditana, and it's translated as foundation, which gives it a kind of passive um, meaning to it. So I've actually changed that to determination. The other word that could be used is resolution. And there are four wholesome resolutions or determinations that the Buddha is going to take us through, which is this wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace. And that is what the Buddha encourages us to cultivate. So they're not worldly resolutions or determinations, nothing to do with the world, as we shall see. And when the Buddha makes reference to these four determinations in this teaching, what we get from the teaching is that it's a very active, not passive thing about the noble path, about you know, developing on, on this noble path. So the Buddha states, the tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these determinations. So the Pali word here is manyasa. And this is translated around conceiving. And it could also be translate, translated about fabrications or things that we imagine uh, that are illusory. In any case, it's really about the lies that arise from wrong view, wrong thought, wrong perceptions about these six elements, these six bases of contact and the 18 kinds of mental exploration. So one becomes a, a sage of peace or is called a sage at peace. So in Pali, this is Muni, Santoti, Vuchati. When we are no longer swept up in these lies, so we, we realize what is deceptive and lying to us, like has that deceptive nature. So in the verse, the Buddha is encouraging us to develop the four determinations to overcome these fabrications, this tide of conceiving the lies. And that's why he says, one should not neglect wisdom, should preserve the truth, should cultivate relinquishment, and should train for peace. Now, the Dhamma behind that verse is very powerful, and that's what the Buddha takes us through in this teaching. So the next part, the Buddha elaborates a little more on that brief explanation or that brief summary. And so we could call this part the Nidesa. So I'll read it out. It says, Bhikkhu, this person consists of six elements. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said? 
there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, and the consciousness element. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Bhikkhu, this person consists of six elements. Bhikkhu, this person consists of six bases of contact. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said? There are the base of eye contact, the base of ear contact, the base of nose contact, the base of tongue contact, the base of body contact, and the base of mind contact. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Bhikkhu, this person consists of six bases of contact. And then he goes on to say, Bhikkhu, this person consists of 18 kinds of mental exploration. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said, on seeing a form with the eye, one explores, explores a form productive of joy. One explores a form productive of grief or sadness. One explores a form productive of equanimity. And it's the same for hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odor with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a tangible with the body, cognizing a mind object with the mind. One explores a mind object productive of joy. One explores a mind object productive of grief or sadness. One explores a mind object productive of equanimity. So that's how you get the 18. And so this is why it was said, because this person consists of 18 kinds of mental exploration. Then the Buddha elaborates, Bhikkhu, this person has four determinations. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said? There are the determination for wisdom, the determination for truth, the determination for relinquishment, and the determination for peace. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Bhikkhu, this person has four determinations. So we won't go further because the Buddha is going to explain this a lot more. And we'll take up his instruction in the exposition or detailed analysis. And we'll look at that sequentially step by step in line with the Buddha's words. So the Buddha ends that brief explanation with the same important verse of the sutta. And this verse is, is really one that we would be wise to memorize and penetrate because it can deeply resonate, especially once we know the Dhamma that underpins this verse. So panyang napamajaya, so one should not neglect wisdom. Satcha manurakeya, one should not one should preserve truth. Chaga manubruheya, should cultivate relinquishment. Fantimeva so sikeyati, should train for peace. So the Buddha is very much going to emphasize these determinations for wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace, also calm. So that's your panya aditana, satcha aditana. Chaga Aditana and Upasamadhi Aditana. And then it finishes with, so it was said, and with reference to what was this said. Now, before we launch into the Buddha's teaching, I'm going to take us back to the four profitable directions. So you will remember this table as the Patipadas. So you see, you have the Dukkha Patipada, Danda Binya, Hipa Binya, and then you have the Sukha Patipadas. So painful practices with slow and quick realization, pleasant practices with slow and quick realization. And this table is really useful to get an overview of where these four determinations, these four aditanas fit in and how it is connected to that verse that we just read out and the Four Noble Truths. So you can see this yellow uh, coloring here. This is where the aditanas are under each of the aharas or actually the patipadas. And 
what we do know is that these Aditanas overcome the floods. So when we think about the nutrients as the unprofitable directions, then these Aditanas overcome the flood for sensuality, the flood for becoming or existence, the flood of views and the flood of ignorance. So what we see when we look at this table is really interesting because we know that the four profitable directions, just for completeness, we can see them mentioned in Chapter 4 of the Anguttara Nikaya. But we also know that the Pethakopadesa gives us this complete detail on what composes these uh, four profitable directions. So let's begin with the first profitable direction. From this table, we can see the determination for truth, the Satcha arises when we know and understand the first noble truth. So this first wonderful and marvelous idea is the first noble truth. This is because if we understand the nature of impermanence and particularly the suffering, when we know that, we want to get out of this predicament. And so this is when we start to recognize that Nibbana is the only thing that the Buddha says offers complete and permanent safety and security. So when we see that by understanding the first noble truth, then what happens is the determination for truth arises. Now, when that arises, we know it is suffering. We know that we want to abandon all the lies and fabrications, all the deception in the world. We want to incline towards Nibbana. And so when that is the case, this concentration due to desire arises, this Chanda Samadhi, because we will actually want the liberation. And so as a result of that, sense restraint arises to preserve and guard the truth, this truth that we made the determination for, the truth for Nibbana. Then if you go to the second profitable direction and to understand the determination for relinquishment, Chaga Aditana, again, it's the same thing. That Chaga Aditana, this determination for relinquishment, it arises because of the second wonderful and marvelous idea. And what is that? That is the origin of suffering, that it is due to craving. So when we have this realization that we suffer because of what we desire, what we're attached to, this craving, then we remember it is due to abhinandati, abhiwadati, ajrasayatitati, whatever we take delight in, welcome or express and remain holding to. And so it is due to craving that we suffer. And so we make this determination to relinquish the tanha. Now, that is the most difficult thing for us to give up, to renunciate, to actually relinquish the tanha, the craving. But if we make that determination for relinquishment based on an understanding of this second noble truth, then what should happen is the concentration due to mind, the chitta samadhi arises. And what you can see is when you have the chitta samadhi, the idipadas also arise because of that. And so you don't shake with any of the conditions. So if we go to the third profitable direction, we can see the determination for wisdom arises due to the third wonderful and marvelous idea. And this is really about the cessation of suffering. So the Dukkha Nirodo, when we know and understand that the cessation of craving is the cessation of suffering, then we make this determination for wisdom. So you remember the other three key terms, Nabi Nadati, we don't take delight, we don't welcome or express, and we don't remain holding. So the teaching in this sutta, this Datu Vibhanga Sutta, is very heavily focused on this determination for wisdom. The bulk of this, this teaching on the six elements is about Tanya. 
So it's really because Buddha wants us to dispel the ignorance because we're seeing things incorrectly. We're not seeing them as they really are because we see them as mine, we see them as me, and we see them as self. So Buddha in this sutta strongly encourages us to abandon the wrong view and develop the right view and see things correctly as they really are, as not mine, not me, not self. And so we are then able to give up the wrong view. When we do this, that's how the wisdom arises. So when we have this determination for wisdom, then you see that we know that we need the energy or the effort. That's why this concentration due to energy or, or effort arises, this vidya samadhi arises. Why does it arise? It arises because we've understood that it's craving that's the problem, which means we understand that if we have the cessation of craving, the nabi nangati, nabi watiti, nadrosayatiti, then we get the cessation of dukkha, cessation of suffering, which is this line. So we make that determination for wisdom, and we know that we need to give up the craving to give up the suffering, and we know that it is based on wisdom. So in that way, eventually, when you really see this Dhamma, so it won't happen overnight, but when we continue to practice in this way, you could actually see that it is possible through wisdom and insight in the meditation to give up greed, hatred, and delusion completely. So without the wisdom, it's, it's not so easy. That's why Buddha is encouraging, develop the proper wisdom, and then you actually start to see it. So the concentration due to effort really helps this process and it arises to help us do that. So if we have the concentration due to effort, what do you see? You see that the bojangas arise and those are the enlightenment factors. So then the fourth one, in terms of this fourth profitable direction, we see that we have the de determination for calm. So this is the upasamadhi aditana. And this arises when we know the fourth wonderful and marvelous idea. So this is the Noble Eightfold Path. That the Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha teaches, this is the way that leads to the cessation of all suffering. We understand that it starts with the right view. So every single teaching, the Buddha is correcting our view. And with the right view comes the right intention and all the other path factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. And with those path factors active, then the right concentration arises. So the concentration due to investigation, having made that determination for calm, this is what arises out of this uh, right concentration. And so when we have that concentration due to investigation, this vimangsa samadhi, then the inclination to relinquish all arises. So this inclination, decision, volition, whatever you want to call it, but it becomes something that strongly arises from that concentration. So we can see that these four concentrations are very important and, and significant in relation to developing the Idipadas for sure, but also the whole thing is to activate all of the Bodhipakya Dhamma, so all the factors of enlightenment get, a, get, get activated. And so this is why the Buddha says, we should not neglect or be negligent of wisdom. We should preserve or guard the truth. We should cultivate relinquishment and train only for peace. So this gives you that synopsis before we launch into all this, all this teaching about wisdom. So the question in the sutta actually asks, how does one not neglect wisdom? So we'll now look at that. 
And really, when you look at this question, it's really looking at how do we develop wisdom rather than neglecting it. So in Pali, the Buddha says, Panya Napajaya. So uh, the Pamajaya is like Pamaja. That translates as having become intoxicated, slothful or negligent. So having neglected. So the cinnamon that we can relate to that is Pamada. You know, one of those mental stains that we we look at, the 16th one in Vatupama Sutta that we meditate on. In this particular context, Pamaja, the Buddha is specifically saying, don't be negligent about developing wisdom. So the Buddha is really saying to us, actively be vigilant, be careful, be heedful, be wise, be diligent, and be very eager towards developing wisdom. Do not delay and don't be lazy. So, you know, that, that's something to bear in mind. So then the Buddha repeats again. He says, there are these six elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, and consciousness element. So we are familiar with these elements from some of our sutta meditations. So we've looked at these in the Chula Sunyata Sutta. So we've meditated on emptying of sensual pleasures, form and formless to go beyond the four great elements of earth, or actually to go beyond the four great go beyond the great element of earth in that meditation. And then being able to reach infinite space, then going beyond that to reach infinite consciousness, and then emptying of that to be able to reach emptiness, and then the perception, neither perception nor non-perception, and even beyond that in that meditation, Chula Sunyata Sutta. In each, we see that it's constructed, there's a sequential pathway. And then the Chunda Sutta, which we've been meditating on, the gata for Dadato Punya Pavadati, Sanyamato Verang, Nachieti, Kusalo Chajahati Papaka, Ragadosa Mohokaya, Sa Nibuttoti. So by giving merit grows, no hate is stored for one restrained, one who is skilled abandons evil things or evil ways. With the destruction of lust, hatred, and delusion, one attains extinguishment. So when we meditate on that verse, we also look at this because we take the step that relates to Panya, we take that from this sutta, Datu Vibhanga Sutta. But what's interesting is when we look at this particular sutta in its entirety, then it's it's same but different. It's similar but different. So we need to be easy to instruct Suvacha and follow the instructions in this particular sutta to get the insight from this whole teaching in Datu Vibhanga Sutta. So let's now deep dive into Patavidatu. So this is often referred to as the earth element. And we also know this as the element of extension. And the Buddha says to Venerable Pukusati, the earth element may be either internal or external. What is the earth, internal earth element? And then he says, whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid or hard, solidified and clung to. That is, Head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, context, contents of the stomach, feces, and whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the internal earth element. Now, both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. And that should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. 
this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So the Buddha is saying we become attached to objects made of the earth element when we don't see them with proper wisdom. So this instruction from the Buddha is so we can see any of the hard and solid things that are made of the earth element as they really are. Now you can see that this is a deeper investigation into the earth element than what we did in the Chula Sunyata Sutta. So this is so we really understand what form is made up of. And you see this in other suttas as well, this particular um, explanation. So what we're familiar with, with the Buddha's instructions here, particularly since we've done the meditation on, Chunda, on the Chunda Sutta, is that we need, really need to apply the mind to see things as they really are. So we also, um, there's a recording of that same gatha, that same verse in the profitable path, which is available online. So we... In that particular meditation, what's interesting is we develop the mind energy in order to see this with wisdom. So in the Chunda Sutta verse, we actually look at our wholesome deeds in order to lift the mind because the mind doesn't really want to see this. But here in this Sutta, the Buddha doesn't give us that kind of instruction. The Buddha just says, just contemplate the earth element correctly. So with all six elements, we must remember we are deceived or duped by them. And because of that, we end up taking them as mine, me, or a self. And so this is the wrong view. And it makes us attach with desire and greed. So it keeps us bound to samsara and the whole mass of suffering. So what we need to do is apply ourselves to the Buddha's instructions and give up the wrong view. And what we really need to see is that it's not mine. It's not me. It's not self. So with the earth element, this element of extension, whatever that is, hard or soft, uh, what we need to do is take our own example to actually see it as it really is. So what examples can we take? So I'm actually going to be a little bit more extensive this time around. So I'm still going to start off with head hairs and things like that, but I'm actually going to cover it a bit more completely because some people really struggle with this. Like I, I've seen in meditation that sometimes people try but it's it's really really hard so i'm going to give more examples this time around and particularly also for people that are listening to this online so that they can actually see too so we'll start again with head hair now we each have our particular perceptions and thoughts about hair we wash it we brush it we style it you know every day and we look in the mirror and we think of the head hair as mine. And when we go to the hair salon and barber, we always think, oh, I like the way my hair has been styled today. Or, or when we're getting ready to go out, we ask people, oh, what do you think? How does my hair look? And so that wrong view of seeing it as mine is very, very strong. So if we go to a hair salon or a barber shop and the apprentice is sweeping up all the cut hair from under the chairs and then it's all in a pile, would we think of that pile of hair as mine? And if you were just to see any random pile of hair, the answer would be no. That pile of hair is earth element, just like the hair on our head is earth element. So the question we ask is, why are we taking the one on our head as mine? And so you come back to the Buddha's words. The Buddha says, both the internal earth element and the earth, external earth element are simply earth element. So in the meditation, if the realization is not coming, that pile of hair that is on the floor at the hairdressers and the head on your hair and it's not connecting, you need to take another example. 
So what about if we're served a plate of food at a restaurant or eatery and there is someone's hair in it? There's just some hair, random hair. It could be head hair. It could be body hair. You ask the question, would we want to eat that plate of food with the hair in it? And of course, the answer is no. We would immediately call the waiter or waitress and send the plate of food back to the kitchen. Now, what's important in both cases is that the pile of hair at the hairdressers or barbershop and the hair in the food at the eatery, we have a natural rejection of that hair because what we're actually doing is seeing it truthfully. We're actually seeing the asuba, that it is not beautiful, fair and pleasing. We're actually rejecting it because we actually in that moment see the foul nature, the hair on the floor and the hair in our food. And so you're really seeing asuba. It's repulsive. It's, it's foul. It's not pleasing. That is the truth. So we would not regard it as mine. It is simply earth element. So the view gets corrected by even seeing asuba. Now, when we look at our own hair and we take it as mine, that's due to seeing beauty. We see suba. We think that it brings us pleasure. That's the wrong view. So if we can take the hair at the hairdresser on the floor and the hair in the plate of food as not mine, then we should be able to regard the hair on the head as also not mine. They are both simply earth element. Okay, so another example. Let's take uh, nails. So this applies to both fingernails and toenails. So we clean them, we buff them uh, in terms of some people, but they paint them with nail polish in order to beautify them. So... What if you saw a small pile of cut nails on one of the side tables or in the guest bathroom bin or something like that? Would you take those nails as mine? The answer would be no. The pile of nails is an earth element, just like the hair on our head. It's earth element. So we should not be taking the nails on our own fingers and, and toes as mine. So we come back to the Buddha's words. Both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. What is inside? part of this body and what is outside are equal, the same, simply earth element. So that's what the Buddha means by seeing it as it really is with proper wisdom. We're no longer imbued with ignorance. So we need to apply that to everything else in the body that is hard and solid. Now, sometimes even after doing two examples, you find that you can't, the mind is still unwilling to connect with this Dhamma. So you need to go more hardcore. And some people who share Dhamma, they go with the difficult ones first, the ones that are more repulsive. Uh, so it's important to really persist because, you know, out of being suvicha, easy to instruct towards the Buddha, then you take as many examples as possible until the mind concedes to the truth. So another example could be taking a tray of extracted teeth at the dentist versus the teeth in our, in our mouths. Uh, we wouldn't take the tray of extracted teeth as mine. So why would we take the teeth in our mouth as mine? They're both simply to be seen as earth element. Again, if that doesn't work, you take the dog chewing a bone versus the bones or the skeleton in our bodies. We wouldn't take the bone that the dog is chewing as mine. So why would we take the bones in our body as mine? They're both simply the earth element. Now we're getting more repulsive. So if we had to clean up the vomit when a loved one is sick and we compare that to the contents in our own stomach, undigested food, when we clean up that vomit, we don't take that as mine. So why are we taking the undigested food in our body as mine? They are both simply earth element. Again, when we see a pile of excrement, 
Maybe we're taking a walk at the beach or at the park. An animal has left some excrement. And that solid bodily waste that we see um, is the same as what is sitting in our large intestine, waiting to be expelled from our body. So you wouldn't take the excrement or waste that you see at the park as mine. So why take what is inside the body as body waste as mine? They're simply to be seen only as earth element. So if those examples are not enough, then you go through the other solid and hard things in the body, such as skin, flesh, sinews, bones, or we've done bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, and mesentery. Now, the final one that I'll share in this regard, it actually relates to all four elements, but I'll, I'll say it here, is if we were to visit Varanasi, and particularly the burning guts along the Ganga or Ganges River, so those of you who have visited, Vara, Vara, visited Varanasi, you'll understand. This is where the dead bodies are openly cremated daily. And what you experience there is all four elements being reduced to ash. So it's similar to how you might burn logs at, on a campfire. The remains are also ash. So we wouldn't take the ash from the campfire as mine, and neither should we take the ashes, the ashen remains of the body as mine. Both are simply earth elements. So it's very helpful to recognize the foulness because it also lends itself to the truth and then being able to see the solid hard being as simply earth element, both internally and ex externally. So you can see in this way, what we're doing is really correcting the sick perceptions, the rogi sanyas, and same with the thoughts and the views that we have these hard and solid parts of the body and they're actually not mine. They're just earth element. We need to regard them simply as earth element and apply it to everything else. So the same needs to be applied in the mind to any other person as well. None of it is mine. When we see what is solid and firm in the bodies, so this extends to our loved ones, to our colleagues, to our pets, and so on, none of it is mine. And it's important to extend the contemplation to everything that is earth element. So this includes all the material objects, the cars, the houses, the roads, the buildings, the bridges, the trees, the flowers, the mountains, anything that is hard and solid and so on. So when we do this and extend it to the whole universe, then we cleanse the mind and we have the right view of the earth element. So really the wisdom that we're developing is this Rather than craving this abhinandati abhiwatiti ajosaititati towards the earth element, we're instead realizing actually we, we're prepared to give it up because there's danger in actually attaching to these things. So we have the nabhinandati, nabhiwatiti, najosaititati. So we don't take delight, don't welcome or express, and we don't remain holding. So in this way, the meditation, we're not limited by the earth element as part of the four great elements that make up form. So once we go through the other three, that of the great three great elements, we're able to exceed form in our meditation to experience formless formlessness. So what we can do now, having just explained that a little bit more thoroughly, is we can do a 10-minute meditation. So let's take an example or as many examples as possible of this earth element and really look at it externally and internally as we've just explained. And this is very much to establish the right view. So how about we do that now? Let's practice this. And once you, the mind is cleansed of that, you 
make sure that you don't see earth element in anybody else, particularly our loved ones, our partners, our children, our parents, our pets, any of that as mine. And we then we extend it to all the other objects in the world, so the buildings, the the mountains, the flowers, whatever it is. So the whole universe becomes cleansed of the wrong view. None, none of it is mine. It is simply earth element. So let's do this meditation. Theravan Saranai. Okay, we can come out of the meditation. So we have now cleansed the mind of the earth element, also called the element of extension. So hopefully that period of meditation was useful in terms of being able to see that. So outside of this session, make sure you, you practice that because it's very important to reduce the, the attachment we have, the identification we have towards this body, particularly the earth element, because it's so solid. So let, let's now dive into Apodatu. So this is often referred to as the water element, also known as the element of cohesion. So the Buddha says, the water element may be either internal or external. What is the internal water element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is water, so liquid, watery, fluid, and clung to. That is bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is watery, is water, watery, and clung to. This is called the internal water element. Now, both the internal water element and the external water element are simply water element. And that should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So again, the Buddha is saying that we become attached to objects make, made up of the water element when we don't see them with proper wisdom. So this instruction from the Buddha is so we can see watery, liquid and fluid things that are made up of this water element as they really are. So externally, we can see many, many different things that are made up of water element. And internally associated with the body as well, we can see that too. Now, according to uh, biology, up to 60% of the adult human body is made up of water. So according to a study, the brain and heart are composed of 73% water. The lungs are about 83% water. The skin contains about 64% water. Muscles and kidneys are 79% water, and even the bones are watery, 31%. So what do we need to do in order to see it as it really is with proper wisdom, as the Buddha would say? So we need to take examples into our minds. So what examples can we take for the water element? And again, I'm going to be a little bit more extensive. So if we start with bags of blood that are used in the hospital, when we see those bags of blood, would we take those bags of blood as mine? The answer would be not, would be no. Those bags of blood are simply the water element. And likewise, if there's an accident on the road and you see blood at the scene, would we take that blood as mine? And again, the answer would be no. So we may experience disgust or repulsion when it comes to seeing blood, that if we play sports and blood is spilled and it's the result of an injury, or for women when it comes to the menstrual cycle. And so when you see it in that way, we see it more truthfully, seeing the foul nature of blood as a suba rather than suba. This is very helpful because then it corrects wrong perceptions, thoughts and views around this, this watery element. In any case, with the example, both the bags of blood at the hospital and the blood at the scene of the accident can see, be seen simply as water element. So when it comes to the blood that is flowing in our bodies, 
Why do we take that as mine? And the Buddha pointedly says, right, these are his words, both the internal water element and the external water element are simply water element. What is inside or part of this body and what is outside are equal. They're the same, simply water element. So this is seeing with the proper wisdom. So we're no longer imbued with ignorance if we can see that. So we need to regard everything else in the body that is watery and liquid, liquid as not mine, that it's simply water element. So again, in the meditation, the mind may be unwilling to connect with this, particularly even around blood. So it's important to persist and take more examples until the mind concedes to the truth. So another example, if we look down the list that the Buddha has given us, we could take sweat. So say, for example, we go to the gym and we find sweat that somebody has unfortunately left on the gym equipment. So if you compare that to the sweat that is coming from our own body, we wouldn't take the sweat that is on the gym equipment as mine. So why are we taking the sweat that is coming from our body as mine? They're simply both water element. Another example, when we see someone crying and the tears that are rolling down their face, we wouldn't take those tears as mine. No. So externally, the tears are simply water element. So when we have tears coming from our you know, eye sockets, then why do we take that as mine? Again, it's simply both water element. And then another example would be if you see a dog or sometimes a person peeing along the side of the road, and you wouldn't take the urine that is left on the side of the road as mine. Of course not. You wouldn't take it as mine. So why would you take the urine that forms in the kidneys and passes through the urine tract and then expelled from our own bodies as mine? They're simply both the earth element, the water element. So if those examples are not enough, then you go through the other things that the Buddha has listed, such as bile, phlegm, fat, pus, grease, snot, and all of the joints. And it's really helpful, again, to recognize the foulness because there's truth in that. And when you see that, then you, you're more easily able to internally and externally see it as the, the water element because you're correcting that sick perception. So in that way, you want to apply that to everything and to, to see that the water element is not mine, it's not me, and it's not self. So all the watery and liquid things. Now, once you do that, you need to apply that to any other person. So you make sure that you understand it from one's own perspective, and then you apply it to all the loved ones, the colleagues, the pets, and the water elements that are with them. And to extend that contemplation after that to everything else. So when you think about the water element in this world, this whole universe, you could go from tap water, groundwater, drain water, aquifers, streams, rivers, waterfalls, oceans, the rain, the reservoirs, the stormwater, and so on. So if you're able to expand the water element to that extent, then we can cleanse the mind in the whole universe with the right view of the water element. So again, this is similar to saying Nabi Nandati, Nabi Wadati, Titati. So in this way, we are not limited by the water element as part of the four great elements that make up form. And then later on, we'll be able to apply the wisdom to exceed form. So let's do another meditation. We probably don't need to do 10 minutes. Let's just do a five-minute meditation. And just take a few water element examples just to make sure that you can see this, that you're applying the Buddhist teaching both internally and ex externally, whatever example it is. Okay, Theruan Saranai. Theruan Saranai, we can come out of the meditation.
So we've now cleansed the mind of the water element and also called the element of extension or cohesion, sorry. Let's now deep dive into Tejo Datu. So this is often referred to as the fire element, but also known as the element of heat. So the Buddha says, the fire element may be either internal or external. What is the internal fire element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. That is, that by which one is warmed, ages, and is consumed. And that by which what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets completely digested or to whoever else internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. This is called the internal fire element. Now, both the internal fire element and the external fire, fire element are simply fire element. And that should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So again, here, the Buddha is saying that we become attached to objects made up of the fire element when we don't see them with proper wisdom. So this instruction is to really see hot and fiery things that they are made up of the fire element as they really are. So externally, we can see different things made up of fire element, and internally, we can also see that too. Now, with respect to the body, heat production is the byproduct of metabolism. And so the result is due to a different number of chemical processes in the body. So when the body breaks down food molecules, the energy in the chemical bonds of the food is released, and that powers the body. And... The body apparently is only 25% efficient, something like that. So 75% of the energy from the food is released as heat. So this body process is something called thermoregulation, and that helps to regulate the body's temperature. So what we need to do is to really see as it properly is, with proper wisdom, by taking examples. So, so let's start with heat that is emitted from rubbish that sits in a bag or a trash can. Would we take that heat as mine? The answer would be no. The heat from the rubbish is simply fire element or element of heat. Likewise, we wouldn't take heat coming from a heater, oven, stove or microwave as mine. It is again simply fire element or element of heat. And so when we look at the heat that is generated internally by the body or the heat that comes from the digestion process, why do we take it as mine? The Buddha says both internal fire element and external fire element are simply fire element. What is inside or part of this body and what is outside or are equal, the same, simply fire element. So we need to dispel the ignorance and see it as it really is with proper wisdom. So again, correcting sick perceptions, thoughts and views about the fiery and hot elements of the body. We're not to see them as mine, not as me, not as self. So we apply this to everything. So we, we do this in terms of our own, what we consider ours, and then we apply it to any other person as well. So our loved ones, our colleagues, our pets, etc. to actually see it's simply fire element and it's also not mine. So once we do that, we extend it to other fire element in this world. So the whole universe, the heat that emits from machines, cars, buildings, the ground, uh, bushfires, campfires, volcanoes, the sun, whatever has the heat or fiery element. So we need to expand the mind, the fire element, to the extent that we can cleanse the mind in the whole universe with the right view. And again, what we do is we 
um, make sure we're not limited by that. So eventually when we want to go beyond form, we're able to not be held back by this fire element. So again, we can we can do another meditation, but I think actually what we might do is pass on these next two because we're actually familiar with this. So in your own time, make sure you go through and look at the fire element in the same way that we did just before. We now come to the air element. So we've cleansed the mind of the fire element and we're now looking at the element of wind or air, vayo datu. And it's also called the element of motion. So the Buddha says, the air element may be either internal or external. What is the internal air element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is air, airy, and clung to. That is, upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs, in-breath and out-breath, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself, is air, airy, and clung to. This is called the internal air element. Now, both the internal air element and the external air element are simply air element, and that should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this, this is not myself. Again, the Buddha is saying we become attached to objects made up of the air or wind element when we don't see them with proper wisdom. So this instruction is really to look at the airy and windy things. And we look at them externally and internally, and we look at a few examples. So here, let's start with the wind that we feel or experience when we're outside, when we're going for a walk. Would we take that motion of air or wind as mine? The answer would be no. And it would be seen simply as air or wind element, the element of motion. Likewise, when there's wind coming from the fan or air conditioner, we wouldn't take that as mine. It's simply the wind element, air element. So when we turn our attention to the air or wind that is in our in-breath and our out-breath, why do we take that as mine? You know, the Buddha says it's simply air element. What is inside and what is outside are equal, simply air element. So that's how we dispel the ignorance. So another example, if we don't take um, the strong winds that come in a storm or the tornado as mine, then why would we take the winds in the belly or the winds in the co that course through our limbs or the winds that are in our organs as mine? Both internal and external are simply the air or wind element. Both are not mine. So we can take another example. So if we're in a lift with a group of people and someone unfortunately passes wind, would we take that wind as mine? The answer would be no. We would be re repulsed by that. So that's a truthful response to the to the fart or the, the passing of wind by another person. So you need to actually see it. All of us, we need to see it as simply the, the, the wind element or the air element. So if that is the case, when we turn our minds to the winds in our bowels that we may also expel from the body, why would we take it as mine? And so... In this way, we are again correcting the rogi sanya, the sick perceptions and whatever thoughts or views that arise from that about the airy and windy parts of the body. So if that's possible, then we definitely wouldn't take it as mine, me or self. So the same thing needs to be applied by everything that is windy or airy in this body and then also to any other person, pets, colleagues, whoever. And so 
when you extend that further, then you also include any air emitted from different equipment, machines, air conditioning inside cars, buildings, air or wind that can be felt around us whether it's a gentle breeze or something much, much stronger, all of it is not to be taken as mine. All of it is simply air or wind element, the element of motion. So in that way, we can not take delight, not welcome, not express, and not remain holding. So again, now we've, we've seen all four uh, great elements that make up form. If we have got the correct view of all four of those, it is possible in the meditation to exceed form. So we won't do the meditation now, but in your own time, make sure that you actually do it to the extent that you can expand it to the whole universe. It's very, very powerful. So then we come to the space element. And at this point, we've cleansed of all four uh, great elements. So the space element is known in Pali as akasadatu. So we're looking at something that is formless, beyond form. And the Buddha says, what bhikkhu is the space element? And he says, the space element may be either internal or external. What is the internal space element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is space, spatial, and clung to. That is, the holes of the ears, the nostrils, the door of the mouth, and that aperture whereby what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets swallowed and where it collects, and whereby it is excreted from below or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is space, spatial, and clung to. This is called the internal space element. Now, both the internal space element and the external space element are simply space element, and that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the space element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the space element. So again, the Buddha is saying we become attached to the space element when we don't see it with proper wisdom. Now, we don't think that we get attached to space, that we cling to space. But when you consider the space that we call our bedroom, our workspace, our house, the space inside and even around our car, what we call our personal space when we're around people, then you can start to see that we actually do cling to space that we deem as ours. And so when it comes to the space associated internally with the body, it is also something we cling to. In our meditation, when we reach the perception of infinite space, having gone beyond the four great elements that make up form, then what we experience is the vastness of space. We get attached and we can cling to that even more so because the mind gets really suffused with so much spaciousness, vastness, and a great deal of happiness. We cling to that feeling of space. So this instruction from the Buddha is so we can see space and spatial things that are made up of the space element as they really are. So this is externally and internally associated with the body as well. So we need to actually take some examples. So if we start with the space that we experience when we're traveling in tra public transport, like if we're on a bus or a train, would we take the space that we experience inside those vehicles as mine? And the answer is no. It's simply space element. 
Likewise, the space in a concert hall or the space when you're sitting in a stadium, do we take that as mine? Again, it's simply the space element. And so when we turn our attention as the Buddha, Buddha has directed us to the space that exists between or in the holes of our ears, or we turn it to um, the space that is in our nostrils, Again, the Buddha is actually asking us to actually pay attention and to see that it is not mine, that both the internal space that we've just said, the holes of the ears or the space in our nostrils, just like the space when we're in, a, in public transport or we're sitting in a concert hall, all that space is simply space element. They're equal. They're the same. And another example could be if we go to the beach or hike up a mountain and we look out into space, we really do enjoy that, consciously or unconsciously, that feeling of spaciousness. However, we wouldn't take that space as mine. And so in the same way, when the Buddha says uh, the space in our mouth, in our digestive tract, in other organs of the body, the space from where we excrete below, all those are meant to be taken as not mine, not me, not self. They're just simply space element. So if we can apply that to everything in relation to the body, then we can also then turn that to other people as well, that the, the space in other people's bodies is also to be seen as not mine. And then we ex extend that contemplation to everything that is space element. So space inside different structures, buildings, space around objects, space just simply everywhere. And so when you expand the space element to that extent, you cleanse the mind of the whole universe with the right view of the space element. So if we're successful, then what will happen is we experience in our meditation vast black space. So it may not be completely black, but in some instances we may have that sense of very subtle forms but they seem very far away but mostly it's very strong that you see the black space and predominantly um, it feels very vast very infinite can't measure it and so it's a bit like the night sky when there's no moon no lights no stars nothing like that so the mind gets very happy when it's outside of a form because you can remain in the perception of infinite space for a very long time. And so when we have this perception of infinite space, we've gone beyond the four great elements, and therefore we've gone beyond sensuality that is based on form. So we're temporary, temporarily not troubled by karma tanha, so craving for sensual pleasures or craving for sensuality. And that's valuable when you think about not being bound to attachments and desires associated with the body even when not when you're in infinite space you don't need to worry about maintaining the body cleaning it feeding it exercising it going to work to earn the money to sustain it and all those kinds of things in the anenja sutta this is Nikaya chapter 3 discourse number 116 the buddha says that some person enters and dwells in the base of infinite space he relishes it, desires it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often dwells in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship with the devas of the base of infinite space. The lifespan of those devas is 20,000 eons. The worldling, so the one that isn't a disciple of the Buddha, remains there all his life. 
And when he has completed the entire lifespan, so that's the 20,000 eons, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the sphere of the afflicted spirits. So that's not a good outcome. But the Blessed One's disciple remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of those devas, he attains final Nibbana in that very same state of existence. So that's not so bad. But one of the things that uh, people can misapprehend about space, but also about the other formless attainments, is that it has this quality, some qualities of Nibbana. So King Melinda, he asked this question of Venerable Nagasena, and we've heard this before, but I'll repeat it again. And this is in Nibbana Rupa Santana Panha. So this is in uh, King Melinda's questions. And Venerable Nagasena uh, tells the king when he asks him about the outward form of Nibbana that Nibbana has nothing similar to it. Uh, there's no metaphor, there's no explanation, there's no reason, there's no argument that can be formed or figured or, or explained in terms of durational measure to make clear about Nibbana. And King Melinda presses uh, Venerable Nagasena more, saying he can't understand. And so Venerable Nagasena mentions that it's possible to give some qualities of Nibbana. And so he says that there's 10 qualities of space that are inherent in Nibbana. So space is neither born nor grows old, neither dies nor passes away, nor is reborn. That means there's no future life to spring up into. It is incompressible. Uh, nothing uh, cannot be carried off by thieves. It rests on nothing, is the sphere in which birds fly, is unobstructed, and it's infinite. So Nibbana is also those things. It's not born. It's, it doesn't grow old. It doesn't die. It doesn't pass away. There's no rebirth. It's inconquerable. Thieves cannot carry it off. It is not attached to anything, and it is the sphere in which arahants move. Nothing can obstruct it, and it is infinite. So those are the 10 qualities of space inherent in Nibbana. So when you contemplate that answer from Venerable Nagasena, you realize it's possible to mistake not just space, but the formless attainments for Nibbana. So that means when you mistake it, you think that you are infinite space, you are infinite consciousness, you are in the plane of nothingness, you are that. You are neither perception nor non-perception. So there is a danger in absorbing and not seeing. But the beauty of the Buddhist teaching is he tells us how we construct and how infinite space comes to arise and how it ceases. Same with infinite consciousness, same with the plane of nothingness, and same with neither perception nor non-perception. And he encourages us to see that. So in respect of reaching um, the perception of infinite space, it's, it is good to experience the vast space. It's very good to recognize it as not Nibbana. So to recognize that it is constructed based on contact and the, 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 the feeling associated with space. If we contact form again, we actually fall from infinite space. So you know that it is impermanent. It's unlasting. It's constructed. And as the Buddha has said in this sutta, when one sees it thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with it, with this space element, makes the mind dispassionate towards the space element because you know it keeps breaking, it's still death bound. So what happens there when you have that insight into space element that you know you can fall from infinite space, even just by, by form coming back into it, then you nabi nandati, 
So you don't crave it anymore, the cessation of craving. So therefore, you simply see for yourself that it's just a space element. It's not something really to get absorbed into and misapprehend. You actually see it for what it is. One can um, enjoy it to the extent, particularly beyond form, but you know it's not Nibbāna. So someone who is Subhicca to the Buddha would continue to practice further, would not just rest there. So uh, rather than meditating on it, I'm going to keep going so we actually can get to at least the end of the point of um, about this wisdom. So the next part is about the consciousness element. And it starts to get really, really interesting because the Buddha starts to explain it in a different way to what he's explained it before. And he really starts to explain a lot about Patita Samupada, particularly the three links of the sense bases, uh, contact and feeling. And this Dhamma is very, very powerful. So I'm going to go through it methodically. So we're going to deep dive into this Vijnana Dhatu. So we know this as consciousness element. And the Buddha says to Venerable Pukasati, then there remains only consciousness, purified and bright. What does one cognize with that consciousness? One cognizes this is pleasant. One cognizes this is painful. One cognizes this is neither painful nor pleasant. So independence on a contact to be felt as pleasant, there arises a pleasant feeling. When one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands I feel a pleasant feeling. One understands with the cessation of that same contact to be felt as pleasant, its corresponding feeling, the pleasant feeling that arose independence on that contact to be felt as pleasant ceases and subsides. You can already see there that the Buddha is pointing to uh, contact being the condition for feeling in Paticca Samupada. And he goes on to explain the same thing for painful feelings. So he says, independence on a contact to be felt as painful, there arises a painful feeling. When one feels a painful feeling, one understands. I feel a painful feeling. One understands with the cessation of that same contact to be felt as painful, its corresponding feeling, the painful feeling that arose independence on that contact to be felt as painful, ceases and subsides. And then the same thing for neither painful nor pleasant feeling or contact and feeling. So what the Buddha is explaining here is the sensory process. So when we see a form with the eye, eye consciousness arises. So the meeting of the three is called contact. So the sense base, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. The meeting of those three is called contact. And because of the contact, we get the feeling. Because Paticca Samupada says, with contact, that is the condition for feeling. So the same thing with the six with the six sense bases. That's the condition for contact, and contact is the condition for feeling. So you see that. And the next slide over, we see that in Paticca Samuppada. So I'm going to come back and uh, explain that a little more. So the same applies to hearing a sound with the ear. Ear consciousness arises. On smelling an odor with the nose, nose consciousness arises. On tasting a flavor with the tongue, 
tongue consciousness arises, on touching a tangible with the body, body consciousness arises, and on cognizing a mind object with the mind, mind consciousness arises. So the Buddha goes into this a little more in the Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, giving, you know, the 18 different types of mental exploration through the six sense, sense bases. So when the Buddha says independence on contact to be felt as pleasant, there arises a pleasant feeling. When one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. What we need to understand here is that we have constructed that pleasant feeling from the mind. So in the past, if we have experienced something as a pleasant feeling, we always try to experience that again. That past perception is what the mind values and has valued as happy, pleasant, good, and we want it again. That is what it will crave. That's where it will say, I want to take delight, welcome or express, and remain holding. And what we perceive, we feel. So if we have perceived it as good, happy, pleasurable, then we feel that as good, happy, pleasurable. It would register as the sukhavedana, the pleasant feeling. If we can re reconstruct from our volitional formations, our sankharas, then we would understand it again as that same pleasant or pleasurable feeling in the mind again. The mind is the one that is doing it. And so we want to do it over and over again. It's a construction. The mind is happy when it can match it. But when it doesn't match it, that's where it becomes the painful experience or the neither painful nor pleasant experience. So it's either happy, unhappy, or something in between. So if we have perceived something as pleasant before, then we've thought that it is pleasant. And the view also is that, oh, this is pleasant. The mind is actually corrupt. It's imbued with something that is perverse. It, it keeps taking this vipalasa of it's actually dukkha, but it wants to see it as sukha. So we know this from the vipalasa sutta. In Pali, we would say this is Dukkha Sukhanti Vipalasa in operation. You know, we're saying we're taking something as pleasurable when it's really suffering, really painful. Now, if you remember from our other meditations, you could say either the four nutriment suffering or the meditation we do on Lobha Dosa Moha, greed, hatred, and delusion. We've already understood with wisdom that all contact. And all feelings that result from the three different kinds of contact result in the three different kinds of dukkha, some form of pain. So if you remember, contact felt as pleasant and pleasant feeling arising, that results in painfulness and change, vipranama dukkha. And if you remember, contact felt as painful and then painful feeling arising, that results in painfulness and pain, dukkha dukkata. And contact as neither painful nor pleasant and neither painful nor pleasant feeling that arises from that, that results in painfulness in construction, sankhara dukkha. So when you understand what the Buddha is describing, that this sensory process and the contact that arises and dependent on the contact, the feeling that arises, we keep reconstructing for the feeling. We keep begging for the feeling and in doing so we keep misapprehending what we construct the feeling we construct it's not what we the mind tells us it's actually all dukkha the result can only be dukkha 
But depending on how the mind evaluates, measures, assigns value to the volitional formations, it constructs it as pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant feeling over and over again. So in each case, the Buddha says, with the cessation of that same contact to be felt as pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant, or its corresponding feeling, the pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant feeling that arose in dependence on their contact to be felt as pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant, ceases and subsides. This is the key point about Nabi Nandati, Nabi Wadati, Nadrosayatitati. When you really understand what is happening with the sensory pr process, how contact comes to arise, and with contact, feeling, then you know if you cease the sensory process, you cease then contact and therefore you cease feeling and when you do that you cease the craving so that's what we want to see in our meditation now very powerful dhamma the buddha then gives us this simile to help us understand and connect with this dhamma so i'll read it out it says and this is still in the Dato vibhanga sutta the buddha says bhikkhu just as from the contact and friction of two fire sticks, heat is generated and fire is produced. And with the separation and disjunction of those two fire sticks, the corresponding heat ceases and subsides. So too, independence on contact to be felt as pleasant, to be felt as painful, to be felt as neither painful nor pleasant. There arises a neither pleasant nor neither painful nor pleasant feeling one understands with the cessation of that same contact to be felt as neither painful nor pleasant its corresponding feeling ceases and subsides so essentially in a nutshell what the buddha is saying when contact ceases the corresponding feeling also ceases if we don't have contact to create friction between the two fire sticks right so there's no contact no rubbing together of the two fire sticks then no fire is produced so this is the same for feeling. If we don't activate the sense process for contact to arise, then there is no feeling that arises. We get the cessation of contact and the cessation of feeling. So I'm just going to pause there for a moment so you can just think about what I just said. So I'm going to say it again. If there is no contact and there's no friction between the fire sticks, there's no fire. So the same thing for feeling. If we don't activate, activate the sense process, like seeing with the eye form and eye consciousness does not come to arise, then that means there's no contact, cessation of contact. With no contact, the cessation of contact, there is no corresponding feeling. So you break the Paticca Samuppada at that point, even temporarily in your meditation. So even with this insight, because this is all about feeling, really, that you, you actually see it's just constructed feeling, then from the infinite space, one can go to infinite consciousness simply by giving up the feeling of space, the feeling of, of spaciousness. One can resolve nabi nandati, nabi wadati, titati to the feeling of space. And so what you do, having seen that space is impermanent, that it's unlasting, you can actually attain to infinite consciousness. And with the attainment, what you see, as we've said before, is you meditate and what you see is light. So what will appear in the vast black space from infinite um, space 
is actually you start to see a light. So sometimes you see the light as a small light in your meditation, and then it begins to expand as you focus on it. Other times it's like there's a beam of light coming from somewhere, a source that you can't see. And so the light may be white, it may be golden, or there may be colors depending on each person. And whatever the light is, that is your light. And so in that way, it's actually the light that's been generated from the mind is what I mean by that. And so in the meditation, the head starts to become quite active, like you feel tingles or sensations around the head. And we've done this in Chula Sunyata Sutta before, so we don't need to meditate on this now because what we can do is go a little further with the Buddha's words and actually look at what we mean by breaking the links in, in Paticca So we'll do that now. So you've seen this before that because of ignorance, that is the condition for volitional formations. And when volitional formations come to be, that's the condition for consciousness. With consciousness as the condition, name and form. Name and form is the condition for six sense bases. And again, with that as the condition, that becomes contact arises. With contact as condition, then feeling, and so on and so on. So you get to the craving, clinging, existence, birth, aging and death, and then the whole mass of suffering again. That's what we know is dependent origination. So what the Buddha has taught us about sense bases, contact and feeling, you can see right here. It's the fifth, sixth, and seventh links in Paticca Samupada. And this is what is really interesting. If we restrain the sense bases and we don't go towards sense objects, so these are the forms, the sounds, the, the flavors, the smells, you know, all those sorts of things, then sense consciousness doesn't come to arise. And if that doesn't come to arise, then we break it here. There's no contact. If there's no contact, there's no feeling. So this is what it means about the sensory process that the Buddha has described. It's that this happens with the sense basis, sense objects, and sense consciousness. So I'll break it down by the senses, the sense bases. If we don't see a form with the eye, eye consciousness does not come to arise. There's no contact. And if there's no contact, there's no corresponding feeling that comes to arise. So the same thing applies to sound. If we don't hear a sound like we restrain with the ear, then ear consciousness does not come to arise. Therefore, there's no contact. With the cessation of contact, there's no corresponding feeling that comes to arise. So you get the cessation of feeling. Again, with um, the nose, if we don't go out with the nose to smell an odor, nose consciousness does not come to arise. So again, there is no contact. With the cessation of contact, there is no corresponding feeling. So we have the cessation of feeling again. Again, with the tongue. If we don't taste flavors with the tongue, we restrain, then tongue consciousness comes to arise. There is no contact, the ceasing of contact. So with the cessation of contact, there is no condition for the corresponding feelings to arise. So we get the cessation of feelings. Again, with the body, if we don't go out and, and touch and have these sensations, then body consciousness doesn't come to arise. If there's no body consciousness, there is no contact. So with the cessation of contact, there's no condition for the corresponding feeling. That doesn't come to arise. 
And so if one does not finally cognize any mind objects with the mind, which are dependent on the other five bases, then mind consciousness doesn't come to arise. And so we cease contact. There's no contact. With the cessation of contact, again, there is no arising of a corresponding feeling. So we experience the cessation of feeling. Now, what that means is that there is no condition for tanha. There is no condition for craving to arise. So that is very, very powerful dhamma. If we even understand a little bit of this in our meditation, or even theoretically now is really good, because then when you go into the meditation, it's very, very helpful. But really, if we really understand this process, then it can only lead to the whole mass of suffering. If you look at it, every time we construct through the sense consciousness with these sense bases and sense objects, it conditions contact. When contact arises, that's a condition for feeling. With feeling to arise, then we crave. When we crave, we cling. When we cling, we want to come to exist. When we want to come to exist, we birth. When we birth, then we experience the aging and death and then the whole mass of suffering. So, you know, it, it's actually, if we really start to understand this, genuinely recognize this, then we genuinely don't want to activate the process that happens here with the six sense bases. And if that is the case, we truly understand what it means that with the breakup of the body after death, we really do not want to reconstruct another eye, another ear, another nose, another tongue, another body, and another mind. Like we genuinely understand that because we see what happens. We keep constructing over and over again. We know that any feeling that arises through the sense basis is a lie. It has all three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, not worth taking as me and mine. So if we can really know through that experience that even with the aging process, we can see it as well, that any experience through our sense basis will continue to de deteriorate and decline as we age. Just look at the hearing the sense of taste, the eyesight, the sense of smell, the vitality in the body, the ability for the mind to remember, to recall, to cognize. It all starts to deteriorate and decline, so you can't rely on it. It's deceptive. So this is the true wisdom that the Buddha is teaching us to develop. And when you start to really look at it, you just bow your head down to the Buddha. For the remainder of this life, when you really think about the Dhamma this way, you would sincerely want to keep the sense bases or the sense faculties calm, peaceful, controlled. So the word that we remember from Karaniya Metta is Santindriyo, that the Buddha taught us, you know, keep the sense faculties calm. Don't let them burn. Don't, don't let them go out. Don't be like the tortoise who goes out, but be like the tortoise when it senses danger and, and retracts the head and limbs. You really start to understand that because if you don't see it, then out of misapprehension about this process, you don't realize that the feeling is constructed. And so every pleasurable feeling that you crave, you keep inadvertently wanting to create another ear, eyes, nose, tongue, body, and mind. 
So the same thing works with indriya sambara, so sense restraint. The same thing works with the seka quality of indriya guttadavaro, guarding the doors to the sense faculties that a seka needs to train. So you see why Buddha emphasizes in the sutta so much about sense restraint, guarding the sense doors, understanding the sense bases. It all comes back to this. So in terms of meditation, what I would recommend is to spend some time going through each of the six sense bases to really uh, understand which of these is stronger in each of us, but also to understand all of them. So for most people, um, it is the eye because we want to see forms like eye consciousness. Uh, we rely on that sense faculty or sense process for happiness because we want to see our loved ones. We want to see the food we're eating. We want to see what's on the internet, what's on the TV, the news. We want to see all the, the pleasant surroundings, you know, all, all that sort of thing. So the reliance on the eye for form is intense. And if we admit it, then we can actually start to look at it. The other one is the tongue for tasting flavors. I mean, I think, I think that one's very obvious to everyone, the tongue consciousness. Many people in the world believe that the only time that they truly can be happy is through their taste buds. And even when people get old, they still believe that, even as the taste buds are aging and that whole process is failing, they still, um, they, they still really hold on to that. And for others, it's through other faculties or bases. It's through like really enjoying pleasant sounds and things. And of course, the body, like touching something tangible, body consciousness. Many people want to get the pleasurable feeling or experience through bodily sensation. So we all understand how that works. But whatever the case may be, all six sense bases need to be investigated in order to see the truth as it as it really is directly for oneself and to make sure that you understand the links independent origination like these three in particular is what the buddha is showing in datu vipanga sutta so if we apply ourselves to that then we actually develop the proper wisdom and so we won't want to continue to re reconstruct like feeling that is conditioned by contact that is also conditioned by the six sense bases and so when you see that then you're not constructing the condition for craving. And that means you're not misapprehending feeling. You're understanding that it's constructed. You're not, you're seeing through all the light. So if we had more time, I would get us to meditate, but I think you could actually, I would recommend you do this at home to go through each of those things. So for example, just to give the meditation ex example, so you can do it at home. So you take one of the sense bases, and you investigate. So if we use the example of taking, uh, seeing form through the eye, so we would want to see our loved ones. We would want to see the TV. We would want to see the food that we're eating. We would want to see the sports happening in the arena. So then eye consciousness comes to arise. As a result of that, there is contact. So dependent on contact, we demand or we beg for the feeling. And due to the feeling, then we have tanha that comes to arise. We we take delight in the forms we are seeing. We welcome them and express, ah, great. Well, it's good to see that and all that sort of thing. And then we remain holding. If we remain holding, then there's delight, there's clinging, there's wanting to come to existence, the bhava, and then there's birth, jati. Because of birth, that's the condition for aging and death, jara marana. 
and then the whole mass of suffering. So you see how this works. So when you recognize that in your meditation, using that example of one sense base, then you realize what we are experiencing is a dire predicament. It's a tragedy. We're deceived by this dependent arising. And through this dependent arising, everything is always death bound. It doesn't last. It's subject to change. And so as a result of that, we continue to suffer. So if we birth again, another ear, eyes, nose, body, and mind, we can expect the same links in the dependent origination again. So then in your meditation, you contemplate the next sense base and so on. But what I would suggest is that just to complete seeing form with the eye and eye consciousness arising and that whole thing, you actually say, okay, let's look at the nabi nandati, nabi wadati, nadrusayatati. So what if we don't see the form with the eye? Then eye consciousness does not come to arise. There is a cessation of contact. If there is no contact, then there is no corresponding feeling. With the cessation of feeling, then you have the cessation of craving. So it's nabi nandati, nabi wadati, nadrusayatati and so on. So you investigate that in the meditation. This is a very powerful meditation. So I would recommend spending some time on it. So the Buddha gives again, he's so generous with his similes. He gives another simile to describe the equanimity that remains when we understand that Dhamma. He says, then there remains only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy and radiant. Suppose Bhikkhu, a skilled goldsmith or his apprentice, were to prepare a furnace, heat up the crucible, take some gold with tongs and put it into the crucible. From time to time, he would blow on it. From time to time, he would sprinkle water over it. And from time to time, he would just look on. That gold would become refined, well-refined, completely refined, faultless, rid of dross, malleable, wieldy, and radiant. Then whatever kind of ornament he wished to make from it, whether a golden chain or earrings or a necklace or a golden garland, it would serve his purpose. So too, Bhikkhu, then there remains only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy and radiant. So with this simile that the Buddha is giving, what he's demonstrating is that if we meditate correctly on these six elements, we become like the goldsmith who prepares the furnace, heats the crucible, applies the gold, blows on it, sprinkles water and looks on. The gold for the goldsmith gets more refined as the impurities are removed. And similarly, when we direct the mind in the correct way with wisdom towards the six elements, then our mind also becomes very refined. So we understand with proper wisdom, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space, and also the conscious elements. And our minds get free of defilements, rid of any mental impurity, and also rid of the darkness of ignorance. So what remains, the Buddha is saying, is equanimity. This upeka that is purified, bright, malleable, and wieldy, and radiant. And so he goes on to say, he understands thus, if I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite space, and to develop the mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mind, supported by that base, clinging to it, 
would remain for a very long time. And he says the same thing for the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception or non-perception. So in this sutta, we've looked at those six elements. And when we understand all that, and we understand, say we get to the base of infinite consciousness, if we give up all feeling, if we understand the dependent origination that the Buddha has just explained to us, and we realize nabi nandati, nabi watati, titati, of all feeling, because we understand that sense process, so we restrain, and so there's no contact, therefore there's no feeling, then with, with that understanding, we can go to the plane of nothingness. So what this really means is when we give up all six elements, we give up earth, water, fire, air, space, and this consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness, then what's left? If, the, if a person consists of six elements, what's left? There are no elements left. And so that's really no things, nothing. So that's how we reach the dimension or plane of nothingness. And so that's what you see. You see in the meditation, um, maybe dots of light across the black space. And again, from the Chula Sunyata, we would have experienced this. And the light may seem brighter than what we experience in infinite consciousness. And then what you really sense is this vast emptiness. And so the head starts to feel that it, it, it opens up. And in this absorption, there's no feeling at all. What's left is actually perception. And the concentration is very, very subtle. And so when you've given up body, you've given up space, you've given up consciousness, you've given up the feeling. And so now even then, you may not even want the, the, the perception. And so you can reach neither perception or non-perception. And it's only at that level that you you actually stop constructing when you come out of neither perception or non-perception that's where you you get the flickers of what was remaining as perceptions but there is no new constructions there so like the goldsmith this is a very refined process and it demonstrates the way that we can peel away all the lies and deceptions the constructions that we see it's actually impermanent that we can actually see that you keep refining, you keep purifying until you know actually that this is not Nibbana, infinite space is not Nibbana, infinite consciousness is not Nibbana, emptiness is not Nibbana, and neither perception or non-perception is not Nibbana. And when the question is asked, is it important to understand uh, that you're going through these, I think the answer is in that, that we don't get duped by it. We see the lie in each one, the impermanence, that it doesn't last. It's still constructed. We can remain in these formless attainments for a long time. And when the mind gets so purified with equanimity, and the Buddha says it's malleable and wieldy, what that really means is that we can direct it to any one of these attainments. And so that's where the Buddha next says, he understands thus, if I were to direct this equanimity so purified and bright to the base of infinite space and to develop my mind accordingly, this would be conditioned. So this means it's constructed. In Pali, the word is sankata. And the Buddha says the same thing if you were to direct the equanimity to the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception or non-perception, that it is all still constructed. And so 
when you see that, what you are really seeing is impermanence, still subject to change, and therefore dukkha, still suffering, not worth taking as mine. So that's why we don't say, I am infinite space, I am infinite consciousness, I am um, emptiness or nothingness, I am neither perception nor non-perception, because you actually see how it arises, how it ceases, that it's still because of something, it's dependently arisen. So then the Buddha says, it does not form any condition. So he doesn't construct anything or generate any volition tending towards either being or non-being. So this refers to existence or non-existence. In Pali, the word is sonevatang abhisankaroti, nabhisankchitayati, bhavaya vibhavaya. So that means not coming to exist or non-existence. So we don't, we realize like when we genuinely realize in the meditation that it's a construction, whether it's infinite space, infinite consciousness, plane of nothing or neither perception or non-perception, we make that determination not to construct that any volition, any thoughts inclined towards bhava or bhava, we actually abandon them because we see through it. We see it's not nibbana. We're still going to slide. It's still death bound. So it's important to use the Buddha's instructions to have that direct insight. That's really the wisdom of arising and passing away, samudaya atangama, and to see the construction for what it is, the permanence and all that. So initially, it's, it's fine to see the happiness, the vastness and the radiance of these higher concentrations, because then we heed the Buddha's instructions and we're able to directly see for ourselves that even if we stay for a long time in any of these attainments, they're still constructed. And what's the point of being reborn to those planes only to fall if you're, if you're not a noble disciple who has attained path and fruit, you fall directly to the lower realms after a long time. And even if you have path and, fr and fruit, the Buddha encourages not to go to formless attainments as a rebirth. He says, what is the point? Um, realize Nibbana instead, rather than having this lifespan of 20,000, 40,000, 64,000, 84,000 eons in these formless planes. So it is only through genuine insights, genuine um, seeing it in your meditation after going there many, many times that you realize that these higher concentrations and absorptions are constructed and therefore they won't last. And Buddha is showing us the way to do it. So only a little bit more. Uh, the Buddha says, since he does not form any conditions, he doesn't construct, doesn't generate any volition towards existence or non-existence, so this being or non-being, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated, not ex so this also means not excited, um, which is the paritasati, so one is not agitated, not excited. And when one is not agitated and not excited, then he attains, personally attains Nibbana. So that's the direct, uh, the direct attainment. So he understands thus, birth is destroyed. The holy or spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. So with this understanding, we don't cling to anything. And when we don't cling to anything, we don't get excited or agitated for anything in the world, anything in any of the realms. 
With wisdom developed through the Buddha's teaching, we see through all the constructed conditions in the world. There is nothing left to cling to or be excited about. And with this strong insight, one can realize Nibbana. So the last simile that the Buddha gives is, if you feel a pleasant feeling, one understands. It's impermanent. There is no holding to it. There is no delight. So in the words here, you can see the Buddha is saying it's anicca. And he's saying there is no holding to it. So that means najosaya titati. And then he says there is no delight. Nabi nandati. So the, it goes backwards. Um, and then he says if he feels a painful feeling, he understands it. It is impermanent. There is no holding to it. There is no delight. And the same thing with neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And so what happens is with any of those feelings, he detaches from it. So whether it's pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful feeling, one detaches from it. And then when he feels a feeling terminating with the body, he understands, I feel a feeling terminating with the body. When he feels that, he understands, I feel a feeling terminating with the body. And then on the breakup of the body, so the dissolution of, of the body with the ending of life, so death, then all that is felt, not being delighted in, will become cool here, just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on an oil and a wick. And when the oil and wick are used up, if it does not get any more fuel, it is extinguished from a lack of fuel. So too, when he feels a feeling terminating with the body, a feeling terminating with life, he understands, I have, I feel a feeling terminating with life. He understands on the dissolution of the body with the ending of life, all that is felt not being delighted in will, be, will become cool right here. Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this wisdom possesses the supreme determination for wisdom. For this bhikkhu is the supreme noble wisdom, namely the knowledge of the destruction of all suffering. So, this is really what it means to not neglect wisdom. This is what it means to really have the panya aditana, the determination for wisdom. So from the Buddha's words, what we're really understanding is that the six elements, we want to see them with proper wisdom. And having seen them with proper wisdom, we're able to give up all six elements. And when we develop this sequentially, all the way up to the formless attainments, then we get this genuine direct insight about construction with form and formless. And through form, that's how we include sensuality as well. So when you see that, you really realize at some point, everything in this world can be relinquished. This is the sabbanisa goal, when you actually understand this with, with, with wisdom. Because it's the wisdom that makes us have that volition that not to construct anything more in any realm of existence and for this reason the buddha says we develop the highest the most supreme noble wisdom and this is the knowledge of the destruction of all suffering so this is the highest knowledge which is actually the knowledge of the cessation of dukkha so it's actually the niroda so i'm going to leave um the Dato Vibhanga Sutta here. So we got to the end of the wisdom. We can share the merit and blessing. So let me start by saying, 
homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, much gratitude for all the teaching, much gratitude for the help to clarify this, this particular teaching and to understand how to practice it. And we can share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem, Deruansara 9.